1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Hi, everyone, and welcome back to New Books Network. I'm Galina Limorenko, doctoral candidate in neuroscience with a focus on biochemistry and molecular biology of neurodegenerative diseases at BFL in Switzerland, and will be your host today. Today, we'll be talking to Christopher Kemp about the new book, Dark and Magical Places, the Neuroscience of Navigation, how the brain helps us to understand and navigate space, and why sometimes it doesn't work the way it should. Inside our heads, we carry around an infinite and endlessly endlessly unfolding map of the world. Navigation is one of the most ancient neural abilities we have, older than language. In dark and magical places, Christopher Kemp embarks on a journey to discover the remarkable extent of what our minds can do. Well, Chris, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me.
0: So, I was wondering if you could start by reflecting on how has this pandemic affected you and your work? <laughs>
1: um, well, yeah, I mean, that's interesting. you know i i wear I wear a couple of different hats professionally, so i am um, I am a journalist and a writer, and I'm also um, also a, a research scientist, and so it's a, it's affected my work in quite a few different ways because I was actually working on the book that we're going to talk about when the pandemic began. And uh, it meant that I had to kind of completely alter the project. I'd had a lot, of, um, a lot of travel planned where I was going to go and meet with scientists, and suddenly that became completely impossible. So it was a book that was, um, that was really researched and written in large part on on zoom and facetime and through through other means and so that's one way that the the pandemic really altered things and then um in my research work i um it didn't really alter things a great deal i mean uh, there was that initial time in in march 2020 when everything seemed to change and within about 10 days i was back in the lab because we had research projects ongoing we had research animals uh, upstairs in our vibarium. and there was really no way to to hit too long of a pause on uh, on the work that we do and so in in a, in some real respect i was very happy to be working where i am because i think i would have gone crazy if uh, if my own personal lockdown had lasted any longer than it did.
0: And going forwards, do you think you will uh, maintain some of the things that you have developed during this time, perhaps uh, more Zoom calls uh, rather than in-person meetings?
1: Yeah, I do believe that that we will. I mean, it's a, it's a real opportunity to uh, try and incorporate some of the big um, societal changes that have taken place. And, you know, even though... Um it was painful and we, we began using some of these technologies because of a pandemic. I think that um in some really important ways some of the changes have been have been incredibly positive. And so um I know that you know I've always worked in academic institutions and so often um institutions like mine tend to use your physical presence as a metric of your productivity and um you know i don't think that's always a very um accurate measure of how engaged you are and how much work you're doing and so um i think that that's changed and i hope that that continues to to be uh to be altered after the pandemic has ended if it if it ever ends um but yeah, I think I, I think that and Zoom calls and technology and the ability to have a meeting from home or to uh, to you know to have a an email exchange instead of a meeting has been has been an incredibly positive change.
0: So you already mentioned that you're both scientist and a journalist, which is quite impressive. So can you tell us a bit more about what you do?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I am a lab manager for a research group here in Grand Rapids in Michigan, and we study primarily Parkinson's disease. And so um, my background is in neuroscience and epidemiology. And um, I'm basically the, um, well, the lab manager sort of acts as a facilitator between the Uh, the the primary investigator who writes all the grants and gets the money and the people in the lab, like the graduate students and the postdoctoral fellows. And it's my job to sort of keep things going and to get people what they need to get, to, to get the work done. So um, that kind of job and especially working in academia has always sort of given me the opportunity to, to try to sort of keep my um, creative side going, which is my my journalism and my writing. And it's, it's always, those two things have always really um, informed each other, I think, and sort of made me better at, at both of them.
0: And how did you get interested in neuroscience?
1: Uh, when I was... Um, undergraduate student. I was doing a degree in biology. Uh, I've always been fascinated by biology, the human body, science. And um, when I was 20 years old, I got to um, do a year in a lab. And I'd happened to work in a neuroscience lab. And from that moment onwards, I never really looked back. I mean, the, the brain is just endlessly complicated and fascinating. I don't think we'll ever really managed to, um, to solve all of its secrets. And so it's um, it, it, it's something that, you know, I, I don't think I could ever see myself working in, in any other field, really.
0: And during your career journey, were there any mentors or colleagues that really inspired you and helped you along the way?
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, I, the, the people I work with now in Grand Rapids, um, I've worked for them and with them for about 12 years now. Um, and I, I couldn't really imagine working for anybody else. And so the way that they approach work, the way that they sort of, um, they, that they mentor people and, uh, provide, um, an environment that is really conducive to learning and to, to, um, to working together um, is um, it's something that I use in my everyday life.
0: And what would you say to our younger listeners and early career researchers perhaps who would be interested in having this kind of dual career like you do both in science and in journalism?
1: Um, well, I think I would say that um, I've been incredibly lucky. I've been really fortunate. I do think that, um, that something has to give really i mean if you so speaking personally for me to work in science and to be a journalist slash writer it meant that i couldn't i i I never did a phd i the the furthest i went in my uh, graduate studies was i have a master's degree in epidemiology and i think that in order to kind of live that dual Life, You know, to have to have two really um, separate and distinct parts of my professional life that I try to cultivate, it means that you have to sort of be realistic about things. I, it would be really hard for me to write as much as I do if I was um, a, a PhD, a professor trying to build a research program and get funded and, and do all that kind of stuff. Um, if I was also trying to write. And, you know, the same is true of my writing career. I I write slowly. I do it for my enjoyment. I don't do it to pay my mortgage. Uh, I've been incredibly fortunate that I've managed to gravitate toward um, subjects that that really interest me. And hopefully that comes across on the page when people read uh, my writing. And so, you know, I really think that you've just got one life to live. So it's really important to try to gravitate toward things that interest you and that keep you engaged and enthusiastic.
0: So one of those things that keep you enthusiastic is the brain, as you mentioned, and your latest book, Dark and Magical Places, the neuroscience of navigation, looks right into human brain. So can you tell, you, tell us how did you come to writing it?
1: Yeah, actually, it's, um, it's really uh, a... a- a pretty personal story in that um, you know i've written a couple of books before, and I write pretty widely about um, about science, particularly about evolution and um, uh, natural history collections that, that that kind of thing and um, I was kind of between books and i was I was looking for a subject that had sort of the um, the breadth and the general interest, uh, looking for a new project and then I realized that, um, you know, my whole life, I've I've struggled incredibly with navigation, I get lost everywhere. Um, it's something that my wife and I, you know, we, we talk about all the time, because she is a very good navigator. And I often will drive past my own house. <laughs> um, and I'll get lost anywhere. And so, kind of in a in a flash several years ago I was I suddenly realized why am I not um looking at that why am I not sort of asking myself why there's this huge gulf of a difference between our two abilities and so um as I as often happens with any of my writing projects I sort of went straight to to Google and Wikipedia and this and the scientific literature and and kind of looked at what was out there um, and you know often when you do that you find that somebody's just written a book and published a book on this subject but in this particular case I just felt like it wasn't really very well represented by by any any book really and so um, that that's how it began so it was you know a few years of really trying to understand my brain <laughs> and my wife's brain and why they function so differently.
0: You cover a lot of really interesting science throughout. So let's delve into some of it. And can we start with the basics? So what is navigation and how did this arise?
1: Yeah, so, uh, and that's a really, you know, it's a fundamental question. What What is navigation? And I think one of the things that makes it such an interesting subject is that it's not really just one thing i mean when you think about navigating even you know from your bedroom to your kitchen in your in your home you know it doesn't have to be a very complicated journey even something like that you have to you have to understand where you currently are and you you have to know where you want to be you have to have a target destination in mind and then you have to know how to get there you have to be able to kind of spatially update the whole time so that you can assess the journey as you make it. And so it's a really, really complicated task that you're asking the brain to do. And um, I would say that, um, that navigation is one of the most complicated things that we ask our brain to do on a regular basis. Um, and, you know, you asked where it came from, what the origins of navigation are. And I think that that's... That's a very complicated question. That's almost as as much philosophy as science. Uh, it, there's there's a real. I, I think in neuroscience, there's a push to sort of think of navigation as memory. The the two really are the same the same thing. You, without memory, you just cannot have navigation. But um, you know, all all animals navigate. Even stationary animals like, you know, if you think of plants and trees and there's lots of really compelling literature uh, that's been written in the last decade or so on the complexity of a forest and even, even forests move. And so navigation on, on the sort of most fundamental level is um, what animals need to do in order to get everything they need, food, water, a mate, territory all those kind of things.
0: So then is brain really necessary for navigation or some other organisms, for example, unicellular organisms or bacteria can navigate as well?
1: Absolutely. That is absolutely true. Yeah. I mean, I think that the way that we we humans do it is a little different to how many other animals do it. I mean, I think lots of other animals, bacteria, for instance, or more... um, simpler animals less developed animals they their kind of navigation is different to ours as is very you know the we humans have such highly developed brains so much of it is our prefrontal cortex our wants and needs and desires and anxieties and hopes and all of those sort of underpin the way that we as a species navigate but but yeah it's um it's not necessarily for, for for lower species. It's definitely a less complex task that uh, that is being performed. Yeah,
0: and for many people, when you talk about navigation, uh, we think about uh, migrating birds as well. So, are their processes dif- different to mammals and humans?
1: Absolutely. Yeah, I mean there's a lot of research being done on birds brains and we um, we're just now starting to understand that, that they can use the earth's magnetic field to navigate in ways that, that we can, you know, they have, they have different sensory equipment than we do Um, other species, mole rats, you know, naked blind mole, mole rats also use the earth's magnetic field to navigate. And so, I mean, that's one of the, one of the things to remember about navigation is that humans compared to many other, even mammal species, just aren't very good at it. (laughs) That's why it's such an important part of our lives. Um, We're very visual as a species. uh, And there are many, um, you know, when I take my dog for a walk, I remind myself that he's got um, orders of magnitude more olfactory receptors than I do and, and he sees the world visually also like I do, but he he's, he smells it in ways that are way more sensitive than I can and he walks through um, you know huge gradients of smell that that tell him uh, a lot more than his vision d- does.
0: So what are the ways that you uh, study brain processes associated with navigation? As I understand, you cannot have a huge MRI machine with the people who are running in a forest.
1: That's totally true. Yeah, I mean, it's um, for something that is such an important part of our daily lives. We are very limited in the way that we can study it in the lab, and so there's there's two main ways. One is that we uh, and, and a, an awful lot of the research that has been done. Um, to this point, has been done on rats and other lab animals, and uh, you know, using um, an experimental animal like that allows uh, researchers to actually listen into individual cells and understand their activity levels in in different situations. So that's one way that we've understood how mammal brains navigate. And then the other way is that. Um, people use um, virtual reality so you can now put um, a person in an fMRI machine and then get them to navigate a virtual city instead of a real city so um, that's been incredibly informative for uh, researchers
0: that's fascinating with a virtual reality you can literally put people anywhere isn't it
1: Yep, you can put people in you know a, a very um data rich environment like a city, you can put them in London or San Francisco or or anywhere you like or you can put them in a desert and um see how they do without any landmarks at all or you could put them in the tundra. Um it's really um it's really incredible and there's there's been some really good research to show that um even though it's not a real environment um, that the brain does process a lot of that sp- spatial information in the same way. So yeah, it's it's really been vital.
0: I was wondering whether some fictional environments can also uh, make a difference. For example, put people in space and see how they orient.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that the the possibilities are endless. If you can imagine it, then you can put someone into that environment. Yeah.
0: So what are some of the basic mechanisms that help us navigate? For example, what are cells involved?
1: Yeah, so over the past 40 or 50 years or so, scientists have gradually been um, identifying these very specific different neurons that, that um that perform incredibly important tasks. So one of them, one of the first ones that was discovered really in the 1970s is the place cell, which is found almost exclusively in the hippocampus, which is a, a brain region involved in learning and memory. And it, um, it fires in a really specific way that tells someone where they are. And the way it does this is that, you know, say there's Several hundred thousand place cells in someone's brain for any specific location, a smaller ensemble of them, so a smaller subpopulation of cells, will fire together to say, I am here, I am in this place. And then when you move to a different location, a completely different subpopulation of cells fires together, say 10,000 cells fires together to say that you're in this different place. And you know, it works in the same way as we can use the alphabet in, you know, numerous different configurations to spell thousands and thousands of words. The place cells fire in these ensembles to denote our location in space. Um, so that's one of the most important ones. I find it sort of mysterious and incredible that those cells are firing away and, and, and doing this for us. Um Then in the 1980s, researchers discovered a completely different type of neuron called the head direction cell, which acts as a kind of internal compass that that fires in a very specific way, depending on where our head is pointed. And and then most recently, in the past 10 years or so, uh, researchers discovered the grid cell, which, again, a completely different neuron fires in a very orderly way to kind of put um, a, a grid, if you like, over our entire environment as we walk through it. And When you think about it, these are all um, really important aspects of any map that we would need. We'd need to know where we were, what direction we were pointing in, and how far or close we were to other parts, other you know aspects of that environment. And so... Together, these cells are always firing away to help us build what we think of as a cognitive map, which is um, kind of an internal representation of our environment that um, is produced in the hippocampus. And that's those are really the, the underpinnings of the human navigation system.
0: And then on the brain networks level, so how does the brain? Do it, for example, we don't know all of our environments all the time, but we still might be able to navigate through them, so even though the memory is involved, we don't really memorize every environment or
1: well that's true i mean it's it, i mean what you're asking is still in large part unknown how we actually do that i mean I think that that's um, that work continues and, it, and I think it will for a long time um, in addition to these to these really specialized neurons that we have, we also have very specialized parts of our cortical area of our brain. The cortex is the, is the sort of surface layer of neurons on, on the brain surface. And the way that the brain helps us perceive our world and make sense of it is that it kind of parcels out different parts of understanding the world to different regions of the brain surface so um, a good example would be facial recognition for instance if you put someone in an fmri machine and show them an image of a tree there's a part of the brain that does not activate Um, but if you show them an image of a face it does activate it's called uh, the the fusiform face area it's basically designed just to um recognize faces and there are people who who have face blindness the prosopagnosia for whom that part of their brain does not work and so we also have several different regions of the brain surface that help us to perceive and understand space too and You know, so they're taking the information that these place cells, grid cells and head direction cells uh, manufacture and they're helping us to interpret our environment and to kind of understand really important information about um, a scene, an environment, help us to um, understand our way through it and to aggregate information and and to navigate our surroundings.
0: So what do we know about navigation of early hominin cultures? And was it different to navigation of people nowadays?
1: Uh, It's a good question. Um, A lot of it is, a lot of that work is necessarily speculative um, because we can only know so much about, say, I, I write in the book about the difference between neanderthals and early humans um, and the best that we have um, when we're thinking about neanderthals and how they navigate is we have their their craniums we have the remains of their skulls and so scientists can take what's known as an endocast which is kind of a they they basically use the cranium as a mold and then what you get back is sort of a rough approximation of the shape of the brain that once sat in that cranium. And, you know, from, from those remains, we know that Neanderthal brains were quite different in shape to um, early human brains. We know that Neanderthals had really kind of flattened skulls and that somewhere in the you know relatively recent history between uh, 100,000 and 60,000 years ago, early humans seemed to have this very rapid expansion of part of our brain that gave us um, sort of much more classically modern human shape of a rounded um, parietal lobe. The, the top part of our brain became much more sort of rounded and less flattened. And um, that's really important because that parietal lobe is where a lot of those um, brain regions uh, can be found that help us to sort of understand our place in the environment and to be able to imagine ourselves in another place. Um, those are really important parts of navigation and You know, it's it like I say, it's quite speculative, but there are researchers who think that that sudden expansion of the brain that made us sort of quintessentially modern human, if you like to think of it that way, is what may have given us an advantage over Neanderthals and it's what might have allowed us to sort of radiate out quite rapidly from Africa like we did and colonize the entire planet. Um, which is something that the Neanderthals didn't do. They lived in a in a really pretty circumscribed uh, territory, a kind of kind of band of territory that they didn't really leave once they got there. And so, yeah, it's a really interesting concept to think that uh, that the the brain changes that that sort of made us human are also the changes that that allowed us to to navigate in the way that we do.
0: And now to a more unsettling question, then. Because nowadays we'll use GPS and many of us have heard that because we use GPS, our navigation skills might be disappearing. Is this true? Uh, yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, in short, I think, it, I think it really is, it, it really is true. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's interesting. You know, the, the brain is really endlessly flexible and it can do such incredible things, but we have to use it. Um, and if we, if we stop using it, then it's very much a case of, you know, it's use it or, or, or lose it, if you like. And so, you know, one of the most interesting things about um, GPS is that it's pretty ubiquitous now. We all have a GPS device in our pockets, on our phones, on uh, on any new car that, that comes off the lot. And um, I, there was not a great deal of research done on GPS and its effects on the brain before we got to this point. I think that's one of the most interesting things. We just sort of let it in. And um, one thing that we definitely do know is that you put if you put someone in an fMRI scanner and you get them to navigate a virtual environment, all of these brain regions that we've talked about, the hippocampus particularly is very activated by navigating. But if you put someone in an fMRI scanner, and you get them to go through a a virtual environment by telling them exactly where to go, you know, turn left, turn right, go straight for a mile, like you do with a GPS, then those brain regions are completely silent, They're, they're, they're just not activated in the same way. And so those are the brain structures that allow us to form this cognitive map and so there's there's some very real evidence forming that for people who rely heavily on gps to navigate they're just not building these maps Um, and that's important because you know navigation is really what you do when you um, when you suddenly see construction up ahead and you have to take an unplanned detour, you know that's that's when you're accessing a, your cognitive map and making sudden, flexible decisions on the fly. And you can't do that if you haven't formed a map. And so, um, yeah, the sort of ubiquity of of GPS is actually um, it, it's quite concerning and it's It's the future
0: so what are some of the brain disorders that can affect people's abilities to navigate
1: well um there are there are many I think the one uh disorder that is most closely linked to navigation is alzheimer's disease um, and you know one of the first symptoms obviously people always. Think of um, alzheimer 's disease as you know, f- dementia, forgetfulness, um, loss of self but um, but by far one of the very first symptoms is uh, sort of impacting the spatial um, abilities and so and that 's because some of them when alzheimer 's disease is is first starting to develop are in a, a brain region called the interrhinal cortex which is where some place cells are and it's where grid cells are and um that means that that's really one of the very first symptoms but there yeah there are other illnesses um particularly i, I you know in the book i list some um situations where if somebody has a brain bleed in a brain region that is particularly important to sort of aggregating spatial information, like uh, the retrosplenial cortex, then, you know, there's a, there's a case I write about. It was a Japanese uh, taxi driver and he was out. He just finished a shift. He had a small brain bleed uh, unbeknownst to, to him. He didn't know what was happening, but suddenly, even though he could see the buildings and he knew where he was he couldn't take that information and access his cognitive map and work out how to get home. And so he had to phone his wife up and tell her where he was, and she had to guide him home. Um, so, yeah, there's all, you know, for a system like the navigation system that relies on so many different brain regions sort of communicating with one another and passing information back and forth, it's quite a fragile system because if any one of those, Components of it um, stops functioning properly, then you're you're going to struggle to navigate.
0: So the loss of navigation then can be a very valuable symptom um, of in order to really recognise that something is uh, wrong.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, um, there's a there's a really um, there's a there's a really interesting smartphone app called uh sea hero quest and i write about it quite a bit in the book because um on the face of it it just looks like a fun sort of game to play on your phone it's you you pilot a little boat around a bunch of islands and it's you know you try to remember um a certain routes and you're looking for monsters and um and it's really it's a fun game to play but um it was actually originally designed to, um, to to try to devise an early detection, if you like, an, a, an early diagnostic tool for Alzheimer's disease. Um, and that's what people, you know, I work in Parkinson's disease, and a lot of people who are studying neurodegenerative disorders are trying to find um, diagnostic tools that give us the ability to recognize that somebody has one of these disorders as early as possible, because that's that's when you're going to have the best chance of trying to um, modify the disease progression and to, you know, try to head it off at the pass if that was at all possible is to get to it uh, as early as possible. So, yeah, so we, we, we have things like see hero quest and, as a result, um, that particular app has allowed researchers to to really um, sort of get at some of these spatial differences between people and why some people are good at navigating and some people are less good at it.
0: And then on the opposite side, are there any super navigators?
1: Uh, yeah, yeah, there definitely are. I mean, wh- one of the reasons I decided to write the book is that my I, my wife is a super navigator. I mean, she um, she's able to perform feats of navigation that I consider almost supernatural. I mean, I just um, am often in awe of her abilities. And, um, you know, spatial abilities in general have a huge range across individuals. And that's one of the things that was so interesting to me. I mean, you take um, other cognitive domains like um, like attention or executive function, and they don't have the same range of ability that spatial abilities do. And so, you know, generally you have a lot of people who are sort of okay. And then you have some people who are just absolutely terrible, lost all the time. And then you do have this small segment of the population that is incredible at it.
0: And one would imagine that uh, having really good spatial navigation would be useful in the Navy, for example, or in the forestry work.
1: I'm sure. Yeah, I'm sure it would be. You know, it's um um that there are definitely some professions that that um that really use their spatial abilities well. Yeah, absolutely.
0: So what are some of the questions that still keep you up at night?
1: Well, I think that um one of the questions that are that will probably always be with me is how do you get better? how do you get better at navigating and you know the thing that the, the one question that i really had at the start of this project was my wife would always say that i just wasn't paying attention i wasn't paying enough attention to where i was and to where i was going and i always pushed against that i i say in the book that i feel like that's a little like telling someone who's colorblind that if they just stared at the grass long enough they would understand that it was green um but Um, I don't, I don't like to tell her that she's right, but I do think that, um, that she, she, she has a point, you know, I think that, um, I have a little, a couple of sections at the back of the book where I have some tips about how to become a better navigator. And it's, it's probably no surprise to anyone that, that one of the most important tips is to pay attention. You know, we can only, um, we can only form a cognitive map and we can only sort of understand where we are and process space. If we're really kind of lucked into it and and looking around and understanding where we are uh, looking for landmarks, trying to, trying to even, you know, think of where the sun is in the, in the sky. I mean, these are all, um, these are all sources of really important spatial information. And I think that um, I uh, I'm just not very good very good at it, but uh, but I think everybody can get a little better. And so that's one of the things that really um, that really sticks with me is can can I improve? Can I continue to improve? Uh, and sometimes that takes a little bit of bravery. That takes for me, you know after I've talked about just how impactful GPS devices are, I rely on one almost completely because I'm so bad. At, at navigating, but then you get to a certain point and you think that it might be a little of a chicken and egg situation, and I will never improve if I'm not willing to switch off the device and get, get lost a few times.
0: And now, thinking about the bigger picture, what would be key implications of exploring our brain and this field of navigation for our society? Perhaps getting children um, interested in navigation a bit earlier or teaching them some of the skills?
1: Yeah, I think so. I I think so. I mean, I I think I come at it from two different directions. One is that, that, yes, it's definitely important to expose kids to um, different environments and to to allow them to be independent and to sort of explore by themselves. I mean, that's how they really generate some of these skill sets. And it's really important to allow them to do that. So that's that's one side. And that's sort of where you were coming from. But I also think um, that, that one thing this project has really allowed me to do is kind of accept that my navigation skills, my spatial abilities, are a product of my brain and how it works. And it's that is part of who I am. Um, and to sort of accept that and to love that about myself and to know that um, – while there's a little bit of an ability to sort of modulate things slightly to improve somewhat that, you know, me not being very good at that is probably just part of how my brain functions. And, um, you know, some people are really good um, at playing musical instruments and some people are good at math and, you you know, sometimes that even goes into sort of the emotional spectrum. So some people are more empathetic, some people are more anxious. And so I just um I think another another part of it is to to sort of accept people as they are. Um we we have the term nowadays, sort of neurotypical and neurodivergent. And um I think everybody's a little neurodivergent one way or another. So to just sort of accept people where you find them.
0: What discoveries along your journey to writing your book, Dark and Magical Places, surprised you the most?
1: I think that, that last one, you know, I write in the book about, um, about a, a young researcher called Nico Dozenbach, um, and he, um, he basically formed what he called the Midnight Scan Club, which was, he was really interested in looking at individual differences in brains and so he um he basically got a group of his young doctor friends together and at midnight when the um when the scanners you know the brain scanning equipment was not being used they would sort of get time in in the equipment uh, at a sort of bargain price and so they would lie in the fMRI scanners and they would have these super high resolution brain scans taken and you know they learned and they've they've written several papers on this um but they've they've basically shown that everyone's brain is incredibly different you know anyone in in the science field has grown very used to seeing scientific papers where they show sort of a grainy image from a scanner and there'll be a little red dot saying you know this is where I don't know, mathematical ability can be found, or this is where spatial ability is, or, uh, you know, a host of any other cognitive abilities can be found in the, in different places in the brain. But what they found is that everyone's brain is incredibly different. And, um, you know, the, the brain is organized in this way. It's called, it's called a connectome. It's how all the different brain regions are connected to one another and that it, the connectome is not always the same in, in different people and so um, that this research is kind of relatively new and ongoing and it's and it really is needed um, and I'm not sure if enough research has really been done on this to to show that everybody is really incredibly different and that's that's the thing that sort of surprised me the most you think um, I think, anyway, I always thought that brains are sort of organised in a in a kind of universal way, and that everyone's brain is relatively similar. But that just is not is not the case.
0: And have you ever done a labyrinth or a maze where you have to navigate through the bushes? <laughs> <laughs> and how good are you? Uh,
1: I am terrible. I'm terrible at that. I am. Um, I, I write in the book about. Um, I mean, one thing that's really interesting about this is that. It takes a little bit of age, I think, and perspective to really understand that there's something that you're not good at. And so I think I only really started to come to terms with my navigational failures when I hit about 40. And that's when you start to really just sort of accept who you are, I think. And um, until then, I just thought everybody was about the same. But I remember going to a mirror maze in um, Chicago. And it's it you know it's a maze that's made entire all the all the walls are mirrored and so everything is reflecting and making new reflections and I found it yeah you know, borderline terrifying uh, mm. and I w- I got lost in there for a while and I ended up having to rely on what would come and find me um, and I'm glad he did because otherwise I would probably still be in the mirror maze but it's um yeah that is something that I have kind of learned to accept that that's, you know, something that I just really feel like I can't do. I can't do labyrinths or mazes or anything like that, especially because it's just not fun for me. I mean, My kids love it. Uh, they love that kind of thing. But for me, it just fills me with anxiety.
0: I that they really need Google Maps for the mirror mazes. <laughs> yeah,
1: that would be great. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Well, this has been a fascinating discussion. So can you tell us what are you currently working on and what will be your next project?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, You know, I'm lucky in that, but as I I said at the start, I have a day job, which is in a research lab. And so on any given day, I'm usually um, sectioning rat brains and staining them for different things and looking at them under a microscope. And that's what I... Um, was doing about an hour ago, and it's what I'll continue to do. Um, in my writing life, I'm very lucky that I sort of wait until some idea or some project kind of sneaks up on me and, and jumps on me. And, and when it does, it normally sort of consumes me for a couple of years. And so I'm waiting for that next thing to, uh, to come and find me
0: what would be the best place for our listeners to find more information about your work and also your book? Um,
1: I have a website and I'm also very findable on, um, on social media, um, Facebook, Twitter, uh, Instagram. And I, um, I do love hearing from people. I love getting feedback. And, um, I think that, um, really my writing is an attempt to start a conversation with someone so I'm always happy to hear from people who want to talk about what they find there
0: well, thank you so much for joining me today and helping us navigate this complex subject sorry for the pun <laughs>
1: <laughs> no I appreciate the pun very much and uh, and I uh, really appreciate the chance to have a chat too